Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. This episode is brought to you in part by Dice Bart. Dice Bard is an online shop with a great selection of dice and sales that rotate every 24 hours. So if you ever have your sights set on a specific set but not a lot of cash, it won't be long till it goes on sale. Running for new players and want to get them quickly acquainted with the different dice they'll need? The Complete Adventures Dice Kit has 29 color-coded dice that are easy to distinguish while reaching hastily across the table so they can roll damage for their fireball spell. Visit DiceBard.com and use the code DMVAN at checkout to get free expedited shipping and let them know that we sent you. DiceBard has everything you need to play Dungeons & Dragons, as long as all you need is dice. This episode is also brought to you in part by Libris Arcana, Canada's premier dice subscription service. Every month you can get a new complete set from D4s to D20s delivered straight to your door. Dice themes are new each month and can be anything your mind can imagine and more. Visit LibrisArcana.com to get a subscription for just $7.97 Canadian each month. Use the promo code DMVAN to let them know we sent you. Be prepared to open up new worlds of adventure with Libris Arcana. folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about using pre-made settings. Today we're talking to Caitlin. How's it going, Caitlin? Uh, good. All right. Um, so, uh, Caitlin, what's your background with tabletop games? My background with tabletop games. Okay. Um, basically wanting to play my entire life and never finding anyone who was also wanting to play until one day I tweeted it. And then suddenly all my friends tweeted back that we should do this. And then we did it. I don't really know how else to describe how that happened. It was just sort of, it it just sort of, I honestly don't know how it happened. It just sort of magically came together. That's kind of what happened to me as well. Like I'd been wanting to play for a while and then I got the beginner's box set. I'm like, I don't have anybody to play with. And then like within two weeks I was playing a game. Yeah, I think um, I had randomly in the weirdest way, gotten into watching Critical Role, and it made me really want to play. And so I was tweeting my frustration about that, and then everyone I knew felt the same way, apparently. <laughs> That's so, great. Yeah. So about how long have you been DMing? Um, Other than a few one-shots, just a couple months. Okay. So our topic today is pre-made settings. Um, let's dive into that. So what pre-made settings do you use when you're running games? I use a combination of a lot, actually. I do, I will, like I mentioned before that I, I do watch Critical Role and when Matt, Matt Mercer published his setting from that, the name escapes me, even though it's like right beside me here. He, it made me realize that I didn't have to write my own setting if I wanted to DM a long campaign, which I just hadn't even realized before. And I wasn't interested at all in creating a world, although I was interested in DMing a long campaign in a world. So I just started using that one. And then whenever I needed something a little bit different, I'll just find something that works and plug it in. Where do you, uh, where do you find stuff? Mostly, I guess, DMs Guild. But also, I just sort of Google it. Like whenever, uh, like recently, I needed... Uh, like a pocket of Feywild that had just sort of popped out of nowhere. And I wasn't quite sure 
how I wanted that to look or how I wanted it to go. So I just found a whole bunch of Feywild one-shots, read through them all, and then found the one that worked the best and plugged it in. Nice. I love DMs Guild for that. It's There's lots of stuff to find there. And then, like you said, failing finding something there, there's Google. And uh, I think, oh, what's Matt Colville's website? AdventureLookup.com. Oh, yes. Yes, I have used that. That is very useful because of how yeah. you can filter things. I think I found somebody who had written out the Adventure Zone as like a campaign guide at some point. Interesting. And was just like had it up there for free. So when you're, so you mostly run in the uh, Taldori, I think is yes, the name. Yes, thank you. Uh, <laughs> when you're, when you're plugging other stuff into that campaign setting, like how much, how much work do you have to do? Or do you kind of just hand wave the bits and pieces that don't quite fit or just ignore them or like how do you go about doing that well the best thing about running a game in a world that you didn't write or like i do it that way so that it's as easy as possible on me so when i'm plugging stuff in i just make it as easy as possible and as a dm i think there's always like like endless opportunities in the story or the writing for things to just work like recently when i sort of plugged in that that pocket of Feywild, uh, the bad guy that my players were chasing, had they had been sort of stumbling upon summoning rituals that he had done by sacrificing people and things. So once they were out of the Feywild, I just had them come upon like a rushed ritual that he had done where he had like sacrificed a white stag. And, you know, I'm a little make it a little, a little uh, atmospheric and just said that he had summoned it and it worked fine. And I, I feel like that is really easy to do in fantasy settings, just make things work with the narrative. Yeah. I was just curious. Cause I, like I've been running a campaign in my own homebrew setting and I think like I've thought about using pre-made like modules or even bits from other campaign settings. And I think this is probably something that other people worry about as well is just like, Oh, how do I make this fit with the campaign that I'm running? And I think being on the, you know, our side of the DM screen, like myself and I I've seen other people online express the same, same thing of just like, I think we forget how much information we have and how little the players have. And if you want to just, like you said, just take something and just put it in and kind of hand wave like, yep, there's a thing here now. Like the players never knew that how hastily or how thin the connection is or anything like that. Like as long as they're having fun, they probably don't care too much. Yeah, I agree. And I I also do that with dungeons. Um, like I, I never design my own dungeons because that's boring to me. And also they would not be any good. So I love just flipping through some of the official books and being like, well, that dungeon looks interesting and plugging it in somewhere and just putting my own encounters in it if need be. Makes sense. Yeah, I think that's probably where I end up spending too much time is trying to figure out how to make dungeons cool and fun and interesting. Um, especially now that I'm on roll 20 and I have to find like art and stuff that I can throw into roll 20 so that they can see the dungeon. And mm. it would probably be a lot easier if I was just you know, buying PDFs and pulling the images out and, and throwing them up instead of spending two hours on a dungeon that they, you know, run through in half an hour. I mean, if you like doing it, like if that's part of D&D that you enjoy doing, I wouldn't rob yourself of that. But for me, it's not what I enjoy about D&D. So I, 
and also I, I don't think I'm good at it. So and, and there's so much out there that's already been created through like every edition, right? Because you can just take anything from any edition and plug it in and like change the monsters if you need to. Yeah, and there's all sorts of tools for converting. Like I'm pretty sure there's at least one tool for converting from third or fourth edition to fifth edition. Like if you plug in like, oh, there's these many monsters and and all this kind of stuff, it'll just spit out like, well, here's what you need for a fifth edition. Yeah. Or even just Wait, is... Oh, sorry. Sorry, wait, is there a website that does that, Sean? Because I I need it for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I I I'm pretty sure I've seen people linking to stuff like that on places on Reddit and stuff. I'll see if I can I might be imagining something and I might need to write this myself, but there's got to be something out there. I'll probably. I also find you don't even necessarily need to bother if you're using like a a fourth or third edition adventure because the story works the same and the monsters, like if it says, I don't know, just if it says goblins, just use fifth edition goblins. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, there's only a few really specific monsters that power levels like swing wildly between editions so like if it's like oh put a i don't know a bugbear in there you're like okay yeah bugbears are about the same difficulty i think when it comes to taking other stuff and and plugging it in it's probably something that i should think more seriously about doing because spending less time on on dungeons and uh like some of the smaller story beats like if i want to have like a mystery section or you know, a social encounter like a ball or something where they have to go and find information. It would probably be a better use of my time to find something that somebody else has written and just use that so that I can focus on the other parts of my campaign that are unique to my campaign instead of trying to do it all and end up not doing any of it as well as I would like. That's how I think about it, because why... I don't know. Everybody's time is very precious. So you may as well focus on doing the things that you love about the game and not the things that you find tedious. Yeah. And I mean, like, this is part of the reason I'm at some point going to get a copy of uh, Tales from the Yawning Portal and Dungeon of the Mad Mage, because even if I don't run specifically those, you know, Dungeon of the Mad Mage is like 26 levels of dungeon and they're all different. Like, that's an amazing resource, even if you're changing all the encounters in it, just to have that set like set out for you. Yeah, and I love somebody else who wants to come up with interesting puzzles for me. Like, great, thank you. I am so bad at that. <laughs> so when you're when you decide that you're going to use a pre-made setting or like pull something from a something you find online or from a book that you've bought. Do you have any advice for, for how to integrate that stuff, how to use that? Um, For me, it's not like I find something and then think about how to integrate it. It's that I realize for this, I need something. And then I go and find what I need, if that makes sense. so And that makes the integrating easier because you've already sort of come up with how to integrate it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you're just sort of... Yeah, you just sort of find what slots in. Um, for example, upcoming in my campaign that I run, I wanted I want my players to have an encounter with a new NPC that has very specific uh, that puts them on a very specific path, I suppose. And, and I, by which I mean, I just want them to delve into a big dungeon with this dude. And so I was just like, okay, well, they find him on the side of the road, and if they go with him, I'll just plug in a dungeon. So I just need to find the right kind of dungeon for what I need. And I think I asked my players how big of a dungeon they'd be okay doing. And I was like, great, that's what I'll find. I think that also like that right there is like, how long do they want to spend in the dungeon? Because my players just 
last session um, finished up a dungeon that they've spent four sessions exploring when I really meant for it to just be a single session, but because of just how long they were spending, like figuring out the, basically like they were, there was teleporter pads basically that moved them around each floor of the dungeon. And they spent Mm -hmm. far too long on each floor. And had I just found like done a search for a, a dungeon online that was like, Hey, where's a, give me a dungeon. That's, you know, takes about three hours for a party of five ninth level characters. And I would have found something better scaled to what I was aiming for yeah. rather than, cause I think I've gotten better at, at figuring out, okay, here's, you know, city parts and NPCs and some storyline beats and stuff like that. But I'm still not great at estimating how long it'll take my party to get through a dungeon. And if I, leaned a little bit more heavily on finding stuff online that, you know, it's been play tested. They know that when they say it's going to take three hours, unless your players are spending two hours, just trying to figure out a puzzle that it'll take them around three hours and it would save me time. So I can, like I said, focus on the stuff that's not necessarily more interesting, but maybe more important to the, to the campaign as a whole. Mm -hmm. So I guess one of the things that I'm curious about, because like I've, I don't think I would ever run a campaign in the Forgotten Realms setting because there's just so much lore. And that's kind of what I'm most interested in is like lore and history and stuff like that. And I don't have the time or the brain space to learn all that stuff, which was why homebrew was mm-hmm. a little bit more appealing to me. But when you're using something like the Tal'Dorei campaign setting, which because it's newer, I feel like there probably isn't as much baggage basically with regards to lore and stuff like that. How do you keep track of or do you feel the need to keep track of like the important and necessary details or history or religion or stuff like that um some of it yes i like i'm using the campaign setting but i'm not necessarily keeping it exactly as is i'm tweaking it to my needs but also having watched so much critical role like you absorb a lot of the lore that way which for me personally was a much more interesting way to learn it than reading a book or like reading reading a textbook basically so that helped it was one of the reasons i decided to go with that setting because i had so much information to draw on from the show and and like only one of my players had watched the show so it was all new to most of them other than that i just i don't know it, it there isn't as much lore in it or yeah, baggage is a good word. It does not have as much baggage as something like the Forgotten Realms, which on top of, you know, setting books has novels. And, you know, I, I feel like people into D&D, if you're doing something in the Forgotten Realms, would expect certain things. While, like I said, only one of my players watches Critical Role, so they don't really expect anything. The, for the one player that does know the the Tal'Dorei setting... Have you ever had an instance of them like having having to deal with like the player knowing something, but their character not necessarily knowing something like that kind of metagaming? Or is it just kind of has your player been fairly cool about like, oh, yeah, I remember this part from the show, but not saying anything more? Um, It hasn't really come up because I the bits that we've done, I've tried to sort of make not terribly associated with anything there. And the things that it were associated with happened like in in real world time quite some time ago so i think 
like it just wasn't fresh in her memory. I will say this is Isla I'm talking about. She's been on the show before. And so it hasn't really come up. I With going forward from where we are, I did have to tell her because I'm changing a whole bunch of stuff, like really important things that happened in the show. So I had to be like, you you don't know anything because I'm going to do things that specifically contradict things that are in the show. So And I didn't want her trying to like figure things out with the wrong information i guess I don't no know. that makes sense and i think that's probably also a good idea if you're even if you are using something like uh the forgotten realms or the other official D campaign settings like Greyhawk or gray whatever the gray one is that's Greyhawk. yeah Greyhawk, where yeah. you use what you want or need and and change the things that you want to because i think these days, like most of the people that we've had in the show, most of the people we talk to, you know, and people that I see online are like a lot of new players are coming in. So there's probably not as much worry these days about having, you know, a player who's been playing in the Forgotten Realms for 20 years. I mean, we like one of our first guests, uh, Jason, is somebody who's been playing for like 20 years. But if I run a campaign for him, I'm not going to run Forgotten Realms partially because he would potentially know it so well and i think oh, uh, jason super wouldn't give a shit <laughs> oh okay cool <laughs> but like i think like other dms like people who have been playing for a long time specifically in forgotten realms i think maybe they are used to a dm saying like hey it's in forgotten realms but we're just using the map and the 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 pantheon we're not really using any of the history of the lore because that i think for me it would make me feel like atlas trying to keep all of that stuff in my head all the the lore and the history and everything but i think just changing bits and pieces so you don't have to worry about messing things up is probably the right idea Mm -hmm. i'm um kind of coming to your point though about being nervous for running it for like older players who maybe played in the forgotten realms a lot or read all the books or whatever like i'm running dragon ice right now uh for caitlin and a couple other people Mm -hmm. and like i don't I probably wouldn't approach that with like people who've been playing since like the eighties or the nineties or something like that, who are really into that setting, but like players who are newer, who might know things, but haven't been like playing in that setting for a long, long time. Don't have those expectations. And like, that makes me more comfortable as a DM running that. I don't think I'd want to DM for seasoned players. I'd be too nervous. <sighs> yeah. It, it can be nerve wracking. I like playing with people who also are just kind of like, rules <laughs> yeah that's and that's one of the things that i like about like my the players that i'm running for are all fairly new and it's one of the nice things also about running in in homebrew versus a, a pre-made setting is that there's a little bit more and i i guess it doesn't really matter when it comes down to it but there's for me it feels like there's a little bit more freedom for the players to be able to add to the setting like for them to say like oh yeah my this faraway land that I'm from has this and this and this, and this is what their society is like. Their backgrounds and the characters that they create have a little bit more impact on the world versus saying that you're uh, an important lord from some from from far from some faraway city is easier in a homebrew rather than like, yeah, I'm an important lord from Waterdeep. Mm, yeah, I don't know. I should say I'm sure most seasoned players are perfectly great people to play for and wouldn't care. You know, they'd be happy to just play even with a new DM. Uh, my reluctance to run for them would probably is is I'm sure all in my head. Yeah, I think it's the same same here. There's yep. yeah, it's intimidating to run 
I feel like it would be intimidating to run for somebody that like has played three different editions across, you know, 15, 20 years. And yeah, it, I think it would just feel a little weird. Yeah. I think a important thing to remember too, if you get in that situation is like, you might be running from a pre-existing setting, but as soon as you start running it, it is your version of the setting. And I think that even fits into the like bigger cosmic lore of D&D, where it's, it's a multiverse where, you know, there are a million versions of Waterdeep for like the millions of different times people have played in that particular setting. And like, it's something to keep in mind also to like defend yourself if you're playing with one of those players who really likes to get at you about lore or something like that. And you're just like, well, you know what? That's not how it happened in this version of it. Yeah, I, I yeah. think Matt Colville has a video about that, about the multiverse. I'm pretty sure that's where I got that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's that's definitely an important point that even if you're running in a pre-made setting, it's still your version of it. That's a very good point. Yeah, that's why I never feel bad about just plugging in whatever I want. Because I'm like, mm, this is mine. Are there any like, bits and pieces that you've found that you would like recommend? Like if somebody's looking for like a... Like I don't know what you've done in your campaign so far, but right. like, have there been any pieces that you found that you would want to use again? Um, well, there the trip to the Feywild, I found like a a Feywild. It was probably a one or two shot, and I like adapted the story that was in that. And there there could have been so much more in it. And while they were there, they made a interesting choice that had some big effects on or would have some big effects they they very quickly left the Feywild after making this choice so they don't see the effects and that like that choice was something that I put in it wasn't in the one shot but I would be really interested in putting them back in that setting eventually and seeing how that all played out I guess that's a, a thing to talk about is just yeah when you've got a pre-made setting or uh, a one shot or something that you found and players coming into pretty much anything in in D, like you're putting them in a situation where they have to make important choices of some kind and those choices should have you know a ripple effect on the world that changes things and you know if you come back in five years their decision will you know maybe there's a statue of them in the town square because they saved everybody or there's a statue off to the side that everybody throws tomatoes at because nobody likes them anymore have you had bits of the the setting that you've had to like write a bunch of notes or keep in your head that like, oh yeah, they've changed this bit of the setting in a meaningful way that I have to remember if they ever come back. Yeah. Like I just described with, with the Feywild, I think, I actually yeah. think people would be, well, I don't want to say, cause some of them might listen. Like there will be ramifications from that. But other than that, nothing's really come up yet. They did just sort of save the town, but the majority of the town doesn't know it. So that's a good workaround for that problem. <laughs> that's a great workaround yeah. for that problem. And I hadn't thought of it. So I'm going to write that down somewhere. Because <laughs> it's a big city and most people didn't really know what was going on. So yay. I don't know. When you're running, because specifically because you're using the, the Taldori setting, have you ever considered like as a background detail or anything like that, the party hearing about, the adventures of like Fox Machina or whatever the name of the new uh, campaign group is like, is that something you've thought about or something that you very much don't want to do? I keep it pretty minimal because I don't want to be 
like quote unquote name dropping. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, this sort of first arc that they just finished was, uh, I guess, slight spoilers for Critical Role, like two years ago, where it was about a war uh, a man or a gnome, I suppose, who had become a warlock of one of the dragons from the Chroma Conclave, and him trying to bring that dragon back to life, basically. Okay. And they were trying to stop that. And so there was, while they were following that storyline, they recently, when they stopped that, they ended up in the cave where they killed that dragon. And I said that there was some treasure left there because I wanted them to have some treasure. And I was like, it looks pretty picked over from the people who killed the dragon originally. You know, that type of thing. Right. But other than that, I try to keep it minimal because I don't want it to turn into me fangirling or me having to like act them. Like, (laughs) no, no, thank you. I guess it'd be more of a because like in the Taldori setting, there's a couple of NPCs in Vox Machina if you're in that that time period that as long as you're like in a different area that it doesn't it's not really a big deal. And yeah, there's some events that have happened that like the what you've done with them having to, you know, deal with somebody trying to resurrect a dragon that Vox Machina killed. That's a really cool idea. I really like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, I guess if you're running in a setting like Forgotten Realms where there are much, I'm assuming many more things that people might know about that you, it would probably be even worse that you have to worry about name dropping. Like what's the name of that dark elf that has so many books about him that nobody seems to like? Prist. Yeah, that guy. Prist. Prist. Who's, yeah, the weirdest name ever. But I guess, yeah, if you're running in a setting like Forgotten Realms, it's probably something it's something that I would probably worry about a little bit more. Cause I, I think I'm on the same page as you. Like I wouldn't want to feel like I'm just, you know, running this campaign so that I can, you know, show people how much of a fan I am of this thing. I want it to be a campaign I'm running for my players. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I didn't want to be like trying to push my critical role agenda on them. <laughs> you know, it's, um, one of the great reliefs to me about Dragon Ice is that Drist is not in it, <laughs> so I don't have to run him. Um, not that I have anything particularly against the character, but like, or that I'm even that familiar with the character, but it's just like, oh, no. it's At this point, it's almost a cliche for him to even come up at a table. Um, though, I, you know, I guess with like a newer generation of players, that's maybe less of a thing. Yeah. Um, the the thing that I think is interesting in Forgotten Realms in the like current series of adventure books is that they're all happening kind of on a timeline. So some things that have happened in previous books have been are mentioned in Dragon Heist, but as far as I can tell, they're never core to the story. So you can pick up any of those books and start running them and not really need to know what happened in the previous ones, which is, uh, I think, a really good bit of design, actually. Yeah. Yeah, having a campaign setting where you have to have bought previous things in order to run, you know, the fifth module that they put out, you have to have run modules one, two, three, and four is not a good idea. I feel like they've been pretty good about that with all the fifth edition books because fifth edition was the one that they wanted to make accessible to everyone. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, from what I can tell, and I've mostly only read Dragon Heist, but I've heard about the other adventures is that it seems like they've they've taken great care to do it that way, which is nice because, and like, I'm sure that wasn't necessarily always the case, especially in 3.5 when, you know, there's like 
a hundred books they put out in like five years or something ridiculous. That's too many books. Doesn't fourth edition have like yes. three dungeon master guides and four players' handbooks? And I'm like, why? Why? Also, yes. Um, I mean, the players' handbooks, they would introduce entirely new classes. So like the and like new player races and stuff like that. So it kind of made sense. But like the dungeon master guides, I I mean I never DM'd in fourth, but I played in it and I know that for the most part I don't think my my DMs ever picked up more than the first one. <sighs> but yeah, their their business model used to be put out as many books as we can as fast as we can and try and sell them all, which um I've talked to some game shop owners who are just like Oh no! It was terrible. We stopped ordering books unless somebody pre-ordered them because yeah. we never knew we could sell them. Whereas with fifth edition, they're like, "No, we pre-order like fifteen or twenty copies, and we know we'll sell yeah. all of them eventually." Are there any campaign settings that, like, once this campaign is over, that you think, like, not even like official published stuff or semi-unofficial stuff on the DMs Guild, but even just like a TV show or a book or anything like that, that you'd be interested in running a campaign? Yeah. Um, I also, another sort of D&D streaming that I watch is High Rollers, um, which is run by, or the DM in that one is Mark Humes. And his campaign settings are amazing. And I love them. And I would love, I mean, I could probably online find everything that I need to find to run something, but I would love for him to publish something in either of his two campaign settings. Because um, I think he comes up with really interesting world backstories, and I uh, I really enjoy both of those. Both he they've done two. They're on their second campaign, and both of their settings have been really interesting. And so I'd like to do that. I like the idea of doing like a Harry Potter one shot. That'd be fun. Yeah, you're like. I, I know a bunch of the people in your group and your group has occasionally done one shots either inspired by other things or like full on set and other things, right? Like did, was it Amy who ran the Parks and Rec one? Well, she it, the setting was completely different. It was just like a fantasy one shot that she found. But through when we were talking about it, we all just decided to do characters based on characters from Parks and Rec. Except for me, I didn't really do that, mostly because I didn't have a good idea. <laughs> but everybody else did, and it was it was fun. You know, like, speaking of settings that we might like to use, I actually, um, in relation to a podcast you're on, Caitlin, I would like to use the original town that Jarrett used in 0D20, which I'm completely blanking on the name of Trintic. Trintic, yeah the frontier town where magic's not allowed because it draws monsters attention and like it's it's a really interesting way place to start a campaign from a role play sense i think yeah especially if you have people who want to be magic users yes like i feel like a lot of players would think oh i have to be a fighter then but it's way more interesting if you're in that setting and you're like yep i'm a wizard I can do literally nothing but magic. <laughs> How about you, Sean? Is there a setting you, you've ever been interested in? Um, the Taldora one seems interesting just because I've watched. I, I'm nowhere near up to date on Critical Role because I used to watch it at work when I had nothing to do. But now that I'm super busy, I have no time to watch it. And a four-hour stream is not something that you can just you know idly watch on the on the couch. There's a couple of uh, fantasy books. V.E. Schwab, she wrote a book called, uh, what I, I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically this like 
urban fantasy about um like three parallel earths and this guy who can travel between these three different londons and one of them is shades of magic yeah one of them is like victorian london this other one is this like semi it's this fantasy london the other one is this like dark fantasy london and how all these londons interact and it was a really good story i really loved reading the books and i think that would be an interesting campaign setting yeah there's there's so many books and not so much movies but it's mostly like books and stuff that i've read that it would be interesting to pull stuff out of that to make campaign settings again matt colville is a big proponent of stealing everything and anything <laughs> so yeah, just, if you yeah talked a bunch about the like his favorite module the cult of the reptile god and how mm-hmm. he will basically just reuse the maps and the plot from that and like reskin it in various ways and i think like that's a really good idea i think is if you find something that you really like whether it's a map or a module or a plot hook or anything like that. If you can find ways to reuse it, do it because it lets you focus on all the other stuff that DMs have to do. Like we've got, we've got a pretty big job, but like we have to worry about NPCs and figuring out maps and dungeons and, you know, combat encounters and all this kind of stuff. And the more that we can, offload onto work that people have already done the i think the better our games are because we can focus on the stuff that we find fun which i think shows through to the players and they tend to have more fun when they can tell that everybody else is having fun i agree and everyone should watch matt colville stuff he has a lot of good advice but yeah I, i think especially if you're a dm who's like potentially running smaller games or more games for like various people repeating stuff you've run before was a good idea also just because you know after a while you really get to know it and you have like a much better feeling for it which is usually a very good way to kick off a campaign one of uh not to turn this into like matt colville hour but one of his earlier running the game videos is about designing like a first session sort of designed to hook your players and i straight up the goblin dungeon right yeah and i straight up use that as my opening like in the Taldore setting i use that session because he designs the dungeon for you it it worked with what i wanted to do because it had somebody being kidnapped to be sacrificed in a ritual and i was like yes that's what's happening and all these other things and he he really I found his videos very useful in making me less nervous about being a DM because he is straight up just steal everything, make it as easy and as fun on yourself as possible and run the game your players want. Yeah. Well, and he's a huge proponent of, you know, it's it's actually really easy to DM. You just have to start doing it. And I, mm-hmm. I really appreciate his videos for that. Yeah. And I think there's there might be times when your players want to do something like they want to have a a murder mystery or some kind of high intrigue or like you're going to run into a situation where your players want to do something that you either don't know how to plot out or plan for or you're just not 100 percent comfortable doing it all yourself yeah like crib steel find modules because other people who really like that stuff have figured it all out and it'll make your life so much easier yeah and like honestly if um we did that episode with angela where we talked about like um, taking inspiration from things and maybe even just stealing the plot of an episode of TV or something like that. Like, I think doing that can be a really good idea too because even if the player recognizes it, a lot of the time they're going to just feel clever for recognizing it and not be like, 
oh, you stole that. Bleh. <laughs> and if you're playing with friends, I mean, you probably have a pretty good idea of what they've seen slash read. So you can always, if it's important to you, try to aim for something they haven't seen slash read. Yes. Like, I could steal a bunch of things from the Broken Sky series because I don't know anybody who's read those books. Yeah, I don't even know what those yeah. are. Young adult adventure novels from the late 90s, I think. Heavily anime influenced. I like them a lot. They are probably not going to be that good when I eventually go and reread them. Yeah, I've got a lot of $10, you know, pulp fantasy novels sitting on my bookshelf that I don't think anybody's read that would be good sources of inspiration. It's something worth doing if you have the time and if you have all of that stuff readily available for you. Mm-hmm. I actually run in the Broken Sky setting, but I would have to create custom character rules and stuff and i just don't don't have the energy for that i just looked this up oh my god it is so 90s anime (laughs) right oh my i love them so much (laughs) i honestly don't know if i'm like scared or intrigued uh you know what i i i I, granted i was a teenage boy when i was reading them or like a preteen when i was reading them i thought they were really good they're they're probably pretty actually loose on plot but they've got some interesting setting details like there's two versions of the world and like colors are sort of inverted and then there are people who can travel between them and the big kind of thing for the setting the way magic worked is um i think after you were a year old you can have these stones put in your back and these beings come look into your future and like decide what kind what like what they do before they put them in you um, but then it also has some things that reflect on class. So people who are richer will have more, so they'll have more abilities or like they'll have a more powerful ability whereas somebody who's poor might have none or only one and then they they have to kind of learn other skills to survive. They do sound interesting. interesting. I'm just like looking at these covers and yes. wondering. The covers are, are so good and so terrible. <laughs> I love them so much. Yeah, but I'm, I'm genuinely wondering how they got published in 99 before like the big anime yeah, boom uh, i don't know like wow the, the the person who wrote them i think is like still around and is a successful writer though he now writes like more serious fantasy stuff these are kind of his like kids books interesting they're not even listed on his on his wikipedia page <laughs> all his other things are the broken sky is not listed so are there any other uh tips or hints that you think are that you'd like to give out for people thinking about using pre-made settings or modules or anything like that um i mean if you i guess don't be afraid to change them like i I think that could be a pitfall you could fall into uh with not you know feeling like you have to stick to them and not make them work for what you want because i mean probably your players aren't reading the setting book that you purchase or find or whatever so they don't know if you change things. So just change what you need to change. Yeah, if you think some detail is weird or, or too weird or like not flushed out enough or just kind of stupid, just change them because you're running it. I guess the other thing is to use, uh, how to explain, like use the rules of the world to create what you want to create is is a good thing too. Like... um. In in the Teldori setting, there are these powerful weapons. Oh god, I forget what they're called. The vestiges of divergence that players can go uh, searching for if they want. And the book comes with a whole bunch listed. But I mean, you can make your own. 
And you can use like how the, the ones in the book work to just create your own that fit what you think your players would want. I, I love giving out treasure. That's like my favorite thing about being a DM, having them find fun things. So I'm all about creating uh, treasures specifically tailored to my characters. I'm the same way, although it's <laughs> bitten me in the ass once or twice where I've accidentally made the party too powerful. I also like to throw uh, monsters at them that are too powerful <laughs> for them, so I don't worry about uh, it. <laughs> yeah, I did the same thing, actually, but I think uh, it was partially an issue of uh, my... I had too many players, so it, I didn't realize that the math changed after a certain right. number of players in the party. I'll also say, like, if in the treasure side of things... I mean, you can always just make everything attunable so that they can True. never have more than three. That's what I've done, basically, is everything they find that does more than a... Like, if it's not arrows or crossbow bolts or a potion, like, if it's something that they wear, it's attunable. Nice. Yeah. And, I mean, you can always change the rules in your own setting and be like, well, you can only have two things attuned. Sorry. Or have something that requires two attunement slots. Yeah, it's crazy powerful. Yeah, or if you have a yeah. weapon, you can give weapon weapons like personalities or something like that, where they won't let other things be attuned to you while you have them. Yeah, so I I never worry about giving out too much treasure, really, because I feel like again, there's always DM solutions. Yeah, you can come up with creative ways to work around it that don't require you to just be like, okay, well, I'm taking away your cool sword that I gave you because I didn't think this through. Yeah. No, that, that seems like the laziest DMing ever. I would agree with that, yes. And a good way to get your players to resent you. Because I would resent a DM that did that to me. For sure. Yeah, you gave me a cool thing and now you've taken it away because you didn't think about how effective it would be. Exactly. I am ashamed um, to admit that I have done that just once. You know, for one specific sword. It, it happens and I feel like it's, an, it's, an, it's a common DM mistake. And like, you know, if you can't think of a creative way around it, at this point, I would advise just talking to the player about it and seeing if you can, and I think we've talked about this before, seeing if you can revise it a bit if it's like too broken. But like, yeah, I feel like just taking the thing. Yeah, I was going to say that happened in our first campaign um, that Isla ran. Uh, she gave me a very powerful bow. And after a bit, she was like, look, can we just change some of the stats on that bow? And I was like, absolutely. I'm murdering. Like, I can't miss. Yeah. So, and... And like, I was fine with that. So having a good, mature conversation with your players, not always the most fun thing, but it then they don't resent you when you break their bow. Yeah, very true. And that can go for like things that aren't just items too. Uh, like Caitlin, at one point, me and you talked about the feet sharpshooter uh, and how it is super broken <laughs> with certain builds of fighter. Yeah. But like, you know, if... As a general piece of advice, if, if you're a DM and something is broken that's not maybe like just how a class works, try to talk to your player about how you can fix that or something. Yeah, or again, if somebody says, can I take the sharpshooter feet? I'm sure somebody out there on the internet has come up with different versions of it that are less broken. So you can say, sure, as long as it's this version. For sure. Making it as easy as possible on yourself is my favorite thing. <laughs> I feel like something you need to do because DMing is a lot of work. If you can find a way to make things easier on yourself, why not do that? 
traditional final question. Jesse, do you want to do the honors? Caitlin, if you could go back in time to a few months ago when you started DMing and give yourself one piece of advice about using a pre-made setting, what would that be? Huh. Oh, God. I am blanking. Um, <laughs> I guess just a, a lot of the advice that we've talked about today and that don't be afraid to change it up and do do whatever you want with it. Like, use the pre-made, but don't be worried about making it your own. Solid advice. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for, for coming on. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And um, do you have anything you want to plug? Um, Sure. You can find me on like a million other podcasts. Um, I do a, uh, a Tolkien read-along podcast with some friends of mine that is supposed to be like the opposite of gatekeeping where reading some reading Tolkien books is involved called So You Want to Read Tolkien. We have a lot of fun and we make fun of everything. And I do a Star Trek Discovery podcast that is sort of slash sci-fi in general um, from kind of a feminist point of view called A Command of Her Own. And I'm on the Zero D20 podcast. Cool. Is there anywhere people can find you online on Twitter or Instagram or whatever? Oh, yeah. You can find me at Inferior Caitlin and Caitlin is C-A-I-T-L-I-N. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on and um, have a great rest of your day. <laughs> Thank you for having me. All right. Our art is done by the wonderful and ever-talented Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. Thanks to our sponsors, Libros Arcana and Dice Bard. And we're also on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash DMs of Vancouver. For just a dollar a month, you get access to episodes a week early. Yeah, big thanks to Craig Chapman and Haley Boros for being our patrons. We really appreciate it, you two. Also, you can find us at social media at DMs of Vancouver. You can find me at Jesse the Red, and you can find Sean at Sean P. Hagen. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye. Bye. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.